The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Jill. Well, I don't know if you've um, read this book or heard of this article before. It was also an op-ed piece in the New York Times. But a a little bit ago, a woman named Kate Bowler, who is actually a professor, assistant professor of history of Christianity at Duke Divinity, wrote uh, a book and also an op-ed piece, uh, specifically after the morning that she realized that she had cancer, stage four. She said this, that the stomach cramps I was suffering from were not caused by a faulty gallbladder, but by a massive tumor. I'm 35. I did the things you might expect someone whose world has suddenly become very small. I sank to my knees and cried. Called my husband at our home nearby, waited until he arrived so we could wrap our arms around each other and say the things that must be said. I've loved you forever. I'm so grateful for our life together. Please take care of our son. Then he walked me from my office to the hospital to start what was left of my new life. But one of my first thoughts was also, Oh God, this is ironic. I recently wrote a book called Blessed. One of the things she has written about and is her focus and has been is uh, particularly the idea of blessing in our American church culture uh, that comes out of what has been called the prosperity gospel. She writes this that I think is really fascinating. Over the last 10 years, being blessed has become a full-fledged American phenomenon. Drivers can choose between a standard of mass-produced, Jesus is Lord, novelty license plate, or blessed for $16.99 and a tasteful aluminum. When an America's Next Top Model star took off his shirt, audiences saw it tattooed above his bulging pectorals. When Americans boast on Twitter about how well they're doing on Thanksgiving, hashtag blessed is the standard hashtag. It's the humble brag of the stars. Hashtag blessed is the only caption suitable for viral images of alpine vacations and family yachting and barely their bikinis. It says, I totally get it. I'm down to earth enough to know that this is crazy. But it also says, God gave this to me. Adorable shrug. Don't blame me. I'm blessed. The other thing she says, though, that is to distinguish this. She says, blessed is a loaded term because it blurs the distinction between two very different categories, gift and reward. It can be a term of pure gratitude. Thank you, God. I could not have secured this for myself, but it can also imply that it was deserved. Thank you, me, 
for being the kind of person who gets it right is a perfect word for an American society that says it believes the American dream is based on hard work, not luck. Now listen to what she says here. This is the punch in the gut, if it hasn't already. The prosperity gospel popularized a Christian explanation for why some people make it and some do not. They revolutionized prayer as an instrument for getting God always to say yes. And it offers people a guarantee. Follow these rules and God will reward you, heal you, and restore you. It's also distressingly similar to the popular cartoon emojis for the iPhone. The ones that show you images of yourself in various poses. One standard shows a hashtag blessed sign. In my world, she says, is, for her, is conspiring to make me believe that I'm special, that I'm the exception whose character will save me from the grisly predictions of the CT scans in my inbox. I am blessed. You know, when you read something like that and you think about that, I don't know everyone's story in here, but it, even going back to what I mentioned in our confession moment, how do, we, how do we measure our relationship with God in this life? That take on American Christianity, and if you read and you think about just the handful of verses that were just doled out to a church in Smyrna, not right down the road, but several centuries ago, who was struggling with suffering, <clears throat> how would they make sense of that? How would they make sense of that? Their reality was persecution. In fact, the word Smyrna in Greek comes from the word myrrh. It's that myrrh that is applied to those who are buried. It was a city of suffering. It was a city that came out of that. And so the question really is interesting here is even Revelation as a book is written to people who are suffering. People who are going through things. How do they measure their relationship with God by whether in this particular category through persecution itself, through the, the suffering at the hands of other people? But for us, I think it can be really interesting in a country and in a place where we're not so worried about maybe suffering at the hands of other people. We, we receive it mildly. We hear of it in other places. We read of it in history. But it can be very easy for us to be numb to the fact that Jesus himself says, if you're really connected to me, expect persecution. Expect suffering. And this church, in their lot in life, they had to have a God who understood their suffering and persecution. Because if they didn't, how would they even make sense of anything? Of reality of itself? Is it, are we those kind of people where if we find ourselves not being blessed or we are blessed, how do we make sense of that? Is that our measure by which God cares for us? Loves us, take care, takes care of us? Even if we are in the midst, what if you are in this room in the midst of something like what Kate Bowler has been going through? How have you been making sense of suffering and persecution? What gives you encouragement in the midst of that? This book is written for sufferers. This letter was written to a church that needed encouragement in the midst of something that didn't make sense, didn't compute, just like Kate's 
understanding of what it means to be meant to be blessed, what it meant to be in relationship with God is that he gives you all these things and things start to work together for your good. But does that mean that suffering isn't an agent, isn't the maybe even one of the greatest ingredients for us to become more and more like Jesus himself? This is a tough one. And the two things that he really puts to us and to this through the church here at Smyrna are, one is the reality of persecution. We need to actually understand as American 21st century Christians, what is the reality of persecution? Not just suffering, but the subset of suffering that is persecution at the hands of others, that it is a reality. But what does it mean for us to be faithful in that? How do we, how do we leave here being more faithful to God, not just more blessed, more faithful to who he is. See, the reality of persecution here is that persecution was their life. It was, if you read this letter, I know your tribulation, your poverty, your slander, and, and, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say they're Jews, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. I mean, it's just consistent for them. To live in a world where in this Roman city particularly, which was heralded, in fact, Smyrna was before even the empire of Rome itself became a superpower, was erecting statues of worship to emperors, to the goddess of Roma. They were all in when it came to Rome. And, 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 and those over the centuries admired Smyrna for the way that it just adhered to the Roman culture, adhered to that. But because of that, the question wasn't, and the struggle wasn't, were you worshiping? Jesus or not, it's the syncretism. In other words, there was this idea in the Roman culture of like, it's okay for you to have your God or goddess, but you need to include our gods and goddesses. This needs to be a part of it. There needs to be a a wrapping around here. And, and, And there was opposition here, major opposition through the state and through others around them. And even this, this reference to the synagogue of Satan doesn't mean that it was just a synagogue that hated them. It was a reference to many who were both in the religious circles outside of Rome and inside of Roman worship that were opposed to the Christians for worshiping Jesus and that were inciting trouble for them. It was a major, major thing for them. And it wasn't just, think about this, the persecution was happening Exclusively, exclusively to them. The, the, many before them had, had, had adhered to that, but th- these Christians, Roman Christians in Smyrna, were receiving persecution because they said, we, are, we want to follow Jesus. It was a value system, not just a religious connection, not just that they, had, they were blessed. They were willing to take on things. Imagine that, willing to take on these things at the cost of following someone. That was their power. It was because of this one person. And a lot of people followed people. This wasn't unique to follow a person. I was watching Comedians in Cars getting coffee. I love that show. I've mentioned it before. There was an interesting episode where Jerry Seinfeld's riding with Sarah Silverman. She's in, and they see actually a church of Scientology. And Sarah says, this comedian, if you don't know who she is, says, what's the big deal? People, we all think that this is such a weird thing, but they're, because we're following a guy named Ron, you know? Everybody knows the guy named Ron, you know? Is that weird? How many religions, and she makes this observation I thought was so interesting. 
so many religions that have some guy and their name. Is it that odd to them? But we think it's so odd. That, that really is the view of what this culture was thinking of the Christians. They're thinking, it's just another guy. Just lump Jesus in with this. Why do you have to be so disruptive? And the Roman, and yet the, the Christians there in that midst were saying, but this is a name above other names. This is what he even says at the beginning. The words of the first and last who died and came to life. There's a reality to them that this name, this one, Jesus, is someone different. He doesn't just come and go. He's the first and last. He's the beginning. He goes around all these things. There's an exclusivity to who he is in Christian belief. Tim Keller said it well about this time period. He said, the Christian belief in their convictions that Jesus was not just a God, but the God, put early Christians on a collision course with nearly everyone that in that religiously pluralistic society. Christians appeared to be a threat to the whole social order. Historians explain that early Christians were, as a result, often disherited, excluded from government jobs, cut out of the best business relationships, and occasionally physically abused and imprisoned. Because they were willing to say, this is a name, this is a one I am willing to follow, they took up a cost. And I think that's really interesting to me. Because I, I wonder how much do we take up as a cost in our lives to follow him? We, we, don't, we don't receive persecution like that. And I don't think we need to elevate our suffering up to their level to say, we need to be in this level of persecution and suffering in order for us to experience who we are in Christ. But it is interesting living in a whole different dynamic where we don't experience that kind of suffering and persecution at the hands. And if we do, it's very rare in this culture, in our society, in our United States. But the thing that we need to know as outside of this culture and outside of our freedoms is there are 322 Christians a day, a day being martyred in the world right now. The persecution may not be going on in the way that we read here in the States or in our city, but around the world right now there have been more martyrs for the faith of Christianity than ever in history before. It is a reality. People reading this in other countries and other places actually read the, the poverty. I know your tribulation, the poverty, the slander, the kinds of that. And they resonate with the fact that yes. And so the question for us is, how do we know the cost? I mean, look, we have to realize that the faith that we believe, what we're doing in here, comes through those whose bones are sitting at the bottom of lakes because they were drowned for their faith. Those who were sawed in half and their blood and their bodies mingle with the dust even to today. That we have more in connection with those and this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us when he is in the gospels and in Matthew, Mark and Luke and John saying, Here's what it means, expect persecution. If you follow me, if you're really mine, expect it. Don't just watch out for it, expect it. Here's the key, is that we have more in common in the blood of Jesus than we do with maybe even our own relatives that may not know him. 
And many of you in this room may not know Jesus. Maybe you're coming back into the church and maybe that's like, whoa, that's radical. But, but, but it's really not in terms of what Christ is saying. He's saying, do we realize there's a reality of persecution and that Jesus knows it? He knows it. Look, David Brooks wrote an article. Uh, he took the title from, um, uh, called Creed or Chaos, and he took the title from uh, Dorothy Sayers, who was a British um, uh, theologian. But he, he writes this, and this is really fascinating to think about why, why is this such a big deal? And why does this understanding of persecution and suffering make sense of our reality? Listen to what he says. Rigorous theology provides believers with a map of of reality. These maps may seem dry and schematic. Most maps do compared with reality. But they contain the accumulated wisdom of thousands of co-believers who through the centuries have faced similar journeys and trials. Rigorous theology allows believers to examine the world intellectually as well as emotionally. Many people want to understand the eternal logic of the universe using reason and logic to wrestle with the concrete assertions and teachings. Rigorous theology helps people avoid mindless conformity. Listen, to what, think about that in terms of the church at Smyrna. Without timeless rules, we all have a tendency to be swept up in the temper of the moment by our circumstances, by what we can measure ourselves by. He says, but tough-minded theologies are countercultural. They insist on principles and practices that provide an antidote to mere fashion. Look, this is in the New York Times. What does it mean for us as people who follow Jesus to really take up the cost of following him? To really take up, this means I have to learn death in this place. Because he knows it. Notice what he says here to them. I think this is amazing. That Jesus knows. He knows what will happen and he knows its, its experience. The reality Jesus takes up. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and not. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. He may be tested for 10 days and have tribulation. It's almost as if Jesus is in the middle of it. He's using intimate language to say, I know it. I am involved in it. Jesus is not a sideline commentator of the church. He's saying, I am intimately involved and know what's going on. In fact, so involved. He says, you will be tested for 10 days. 10 days in, in this context doesn't mean it may be literal 10 days, but he's saying for a limited time, I know that you will receive this. So be prepared that he knows that on either side, that he puts himself in that position. And here's what is incredible too. He puts himself at the very beginning as he does at every letter to the church about his character and his characteristics in connection to that. What does he call himself? The words of the what? first and the last. Why would that be important to the church to know? Because if your suffering and tribulation is 10 days, what gives you encouragement more than that? Is it to know, okay, it's 10 days, I can gut it out and make it? Maybe. But is the reality of moving into those 10 days and trying to just gut it out what really transforms you, what really makes you someone new in your character. It's the fact that there was someone before and after, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. 
Those are even Roman numerals that were used to say Jesus is the one who is eternal. Longer than any of our tribulation, who goes before it and who comes behind it is Christ. And for some of us, that's really difficult that he knows that because in the midst of suffering, what's so difficult? It's so hard, but to know that he's with us. Look, I remember my son, I was just talking about this with somebody the other day. My son who when he was younger, he had a lot of fluid in his ears and he had to get tubes. Some of your children or maybe some of you have had that before. He had to have tubes in his ears and it helped relieve the pressure and those kind of things. But what was so excruciating was when we had to take him to get the tubes when he was this little bitty kid. And to walk him into the office, the doctor's office, and to be there with him and feel like, okay, no, 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 you know, we're sitting with him and knowing that he's about to have this little procedure done, heard that it wasn't a big procedure, but here's what was killing us, was the fact that when the doctor came out, even the doctor we knew, came out, grabbed him, and we were kind of starting to walk, and he said, no, y'all need to stay there. As this, I think he was two at the time, two-year-old child just going down the hall on the shoulder of another doctor with him clawing the back of this doctor saying, no, no, and the door is swinging close. And we knew in that moment, right, what was going on, but that excruciating difficulty to know what was coming before and after, but he did not know that. He didn't know that he needed to have that or he couldn't speak well. He didn't know he needed to have that or he had consistently have infections that could severely be an impediment to him. But in the midst of it, he was surrounded by what was God's work and goodness. That is what he's doing here. And and, and not only that, he goes even beyond that to this list. He says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, and the slander. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, not only do I go before it and behind it, but I've actually done all of it. If you read the Gospels, the narrative accounts of Jesus, I'd encourage you, if you haven't read, they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I don't say that to you to insult any of you in this room, but many in this room may not have read them or know where they are. They're the first four books of the New Testament. They are the accounts of Jesus on this earth. And if you look at his life, he is living this very thing. He doesn't just know their tribulation in knowledge. He knows their tribulation in flesh. What makes persecution something that he addresses because he, he steps into it? He actually puts it on himself. See, the reality of persecution is the fact that Jesus, if we, if we want to connect ourselves to him, is the fact that we have a savior, someone we are worshiping this morning. We are saying we want to worship Jesus is that he puts himself intentionally in the position, intentionally, of persecution and suffering. Not only so he just knows by knowledge, but he knows and has taken it up in his life and death. We must answer for the fact that that if we really want to follow Jesus, that we are taking on a suffering servant, a persecuted savior, one who cares about the persecution and suffering of you in this room and those we never think about because we can often live in our own bubbles. Praise God that he thinks about that. That's not necessarily a call to you to go somewhere. Maybe it is. 
But it is to say to you, what is the reality of this Savior who knows he took up the cost because we're unwilling? And what frees us to take it up and say, where, do I, where am I unwilling to take up the cost? Is to look at the one who's done it. Look at this Christ, this Savior. This is the reality of who he is. And it leads to the faithfulness in persecution. Look at what he says even here. He says in verse 10, do not, be, be, uh, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give him a crown of life. If there was one major characteristic about the city of Smyrna, it was this. Centuries before, I mean centuries, it was waylaid, leveled. And for hundreds of years, this city sat as nothing. It was a crushed place. And when it rebuilt, it was one of the most beautiful and magnificent cities. The streets, the paved roads, it was heralded by many. And Cicero even said it himself. He said, where our most faithful and oldest allies live are in Smyrna. They were faithful to Rome for their resurrection. They were faithful to Rome for what they received. And they weren't Rome itself, but they were, they were like those people, you know, that cheer football season's coming up, right? And there are so many people that cheer for teams, but they never went to the school. And they're usually the loudest fans, right? Or didn't live in the city where it was, but it was nearby and they cheer for it. You're like, where are you from? Oh, you're not from there, but that's my team. I die. Like that was Smyrna. They cheer for Rome so hard. They wear the uniform. They are all in. And when you lived in Smyrna, you were faithful to Rome itself. But what was interesting about them is this is why Jesus says, be faithful unto death. There is a demarcation of faithfulness. Where be faithful. Smyrna understood that. The people there would understand that. But to take on this cost, it meant be faithful. It meant to take up another. And the question is, where is our identity in the midst of our suffering and persecution? And there was even an article written that was fascinating to me. It was called The Evangelical Persecution Complex. It was written in The, the Atlantic. It says the problem that most in U.S. history, Christians haven't been persecuted, at least not in comparison to early believers or even what Christians in places in other countries like Iraq or other places face. So the question for American Christians is what to make of the Bible's warning that we will be persecuted. For many evangelicals, the lack of very public and dramatic persecution can be interpreted as a sign that they just aren't faithful enough. That's in the Atlantic. How do we handle our faithfulness? Is, is it every time someone presses against Christianity, are we, are we the first ones to be, say, we're being oppressed? You see, before Jesus said, you're gonna be persecuted, he said, we must be peacemakers. Expect persecution. The way the church actually grew was through persecution and suffering. So the question for us is, what is our identity? Is it a cause? Is it us saying, we need to take up the cause of Christianity? Or is 
This letter saying it is a relationship in Christ. He's not saying fight back and say you need rights. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't fight for those things in our country. We have a country we can do that. But we do need to ask the question, are we, is our first, first foot forward defensiveness about being a Christian? Or does it cause us to be peacemakers because we are in someone else? We need to be careful whether we're heralding a cause or we're in a relationship with Christ first. Which one is it? Because in our culture, it can be easily taken up in that way. Here's, here, here's a couple questions for you about that. Think about this. Is your faith, and especially in a city like Nashville, which can be very easily done, there's cities in our country that are not like this. Does your faith depend on a couple things? Do people around you, everyone around you, maybe know that you're a Christian, but you never talk about it? Especially those maybe even that may not know Jesus. Look, one of the things that I am most passionate about for us as a church is how much do we see as our city grows, and even if it didn't grow, that those around us, and maybe even in this room this morning, who do not know this language, who do not live in this place, how much do they know that we follow Christ? Or is it a title? Or is it a cause? Or is it something else? Are there people around us that may not know, or maybe they say they know, and it's just one of those kind of functions. Is it a reality in your life that it displays you're following Jesus? And the other questions of that is, maybe you do receive persecution. Maybe you have been shunned, ignored. I've, I've, I've received social persecution before. Maybe you have received that. But maybe we need to ask the question of what does, what makes up a person who follows Jesus to not deny him when we are oppressed in that moment? What causes us to be faithful? To follow him, to cling to him. He's not saying be fruitful, he's saying be faithful. He's saying cling to him, to have a crown. It means what spreads the gospel? It means that we receive, we are peacemakers in the midst of our persecution and suffering. Blessed are, what? What does Jesus say? Those who are persecuted. Right? Jesus talks about this openly in the Sermon on the Mount to all those around him. What does it mean to follow him? It means that our measure before God is not how well we are doing, it is in him, it's in Jesus. It's in Christ alone, our measure is not our blessings. And it's not the amount of our persecution and suffering. It's the attachment to the value of who Christ is. It's who we are in him. See, this, this passage is so interesting because this table sets it for us. This passage begins this way. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. What makes us actually have faithfulness in suffering and persecution different than anything else, different than a cause, different than a philosophy, different than any sort of thing we could take up? It's the fact that he died and came to life. When Smyrna was leveled, 
It was resurrected. In fact, that language is used. Resurrected hundreds of years later and heralded as one of the greatest comeback resurrection stories of any city. It is not coincidence that Jesus says, who died and came to life. You can resurrect a city. You can build all sorts of great things in it. But to resurrect a person? You can follow a city. You can see a city's rise and fall. But to follow a person who not only goes into death but beats it, who takes on suffering and persecution, not just the ones we know here about our own individual suffering and persecution, but the kinds where we know people are being beheaded for in other countries and places before and after us. This is the one we're connected to. This table is one who was persecuted. That's why it's called body and blood. Do you know that one reason they persecuted the Christians in Rome was because they thought they were cannibals? Because they said, we're taking the body and blood of Christ. This is a table of one who is persecuted. To join in his suffering, to say when you let that bread and wine hit your lips, that you recognize that you're connecting yourself to a persecuted suffering savior who goes into your suffering, who not only knows before and after it is the first and the last, but he goes to death and brings us out of it. You can come to this table and rejoice. Why in the world would the Bible say rejoice in your suffering? Because when you come line up at this table, you have a Savior who's already beaten it. He has overcome the world. Your measure for coming to this table is in Jesus alone, no other measure. Come in Him. Let's stand now.